we are always all facets of ourself. So my bio is marketer, writer, speaker by day, singer, actor, fitness fiend by night. I bring all of that to all of my engagements. But when I stand on stage and present, I am not doing barbell curls in a tank top while I do that. When I go to the gym, I'm not showing up in a skirt and heels and a full face of makeup and my hair done. So it requires a lot of self-awareness and it requires you to step back and look at what do you want to be? What are you? What is realistically not going to change? And so how do you curate that, not create it, not mask it, but curate it to get to that level where it does feel authentic to you and it reads authentically or sounds authentic to the audience. Welcome to the Speak as a Leader podcast, where you learn how to speak fearlessly on stage, on camera, and in person. I'm Nasheen, a leadership communications coach from the Fortune 500 world. And on Speak as a Leader, I talk to leaders from corporate giants like Amazon and Google to startup founders, visionaries, TEDx speakers, and even leaders who have worked at the Pentagon. You will get to know how these leaders learned the art and science of speaking fearlessly on any stage. Let's get started. Ashley Foss is a woman of many talents, a theater actress, a fitness nerd, and maybe more relevant to you, she's the director of integrated product marketing at Atlassian. Yes, that Atlassian, the software company with 10 million monthly active users in 190 countries. What's unique about Ashley is that she's established her personal brand while being a corporate employee all her life. Her writing has been published on Time, Forbes, and Marketing Profs, and she's spoken on many international stages, including Harvard Business Review. We talk about how she curates her public persona and speaks as a leader in and outside her company. I can't wait for you to hear this. Let's go. Thank you so much for joining me on the Speak as a Leader podcast, Ashley. I am so thrilled to be talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've had a really interesting career in marketing and communications. And this is the one thing that we have in common because my career also started in marketing. So I have a really interesting, sometimes love-hate relationship with marketing. And I want to start us off with your story. So I would love to know a little bit about your journey in marketing and communications and your journey as a leader. Sure. So I am probably one of the few people who majored in marketing and has spent my entire career in marketing. Um, I've obviously bounced around a bit in different marketing roles, depending on the size of the company. And obviously now at Atlassian, a bigger company, um, I've had a couple of different roles across marketing. But yeah, I um, when I was in college, I originally started as a musical theater major, actually, and then decided that, you know, basically realized I was not talented enough to perform for a living um, and I didn't want to teach. So I was like, what am I going to do with a performance degree. Um, so I, I went on a little quest to find what I should do with myself. And I walked into a marketing 101 class, opened the textbook and it said, marketing is about people. And I was like, done. This is what I'm doing with myself. Um, and I just love it. Like 
I think, I think humans are so fascinating. Like I like to dig around in their brains and figure out what makes them tick. I like to match problems with solutions. And so I've been really fortunate to get to do that across a lot of different areas within marketing um, and to really find that passion, um, managing a team, helping out other marketers and helping them grow um, across, you know, all areas of marketing. And I think the really fascinating thing about marketing is that you have to think like the customer, think like the audience, think like the people whose heads you want to get inside. So I would probably, I would venture a guess to say that you're probably very good at adapting your voice and being able to speak in different tones of voice and speak almost as different personas. Would that be correct? Yeah. So it's funny because I I joke that all the best marketers are former theater nerds for exactly that reason, that I'm so used to stepping into somebody else's shoes, that character, how do they walk? How do they talk? What do they dress like? What are they motivated by in this moment? And so if you start to apply that, and I think it's unfortunate, especially, you know, being in B2B, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, it's this stuffy, rigid thing. And like, well, we need to have all of this evidence, right? And the reality is there's humans behind the screen and they're whole humans. And yes, you may be engaging with them or interacting with them in a work or professional context, but they don't leave all the rest of themselves out of that as much as we all try to put ourselves in this box um, and less so, especially with remote work now, you know, you get a sense of me being not in an office, but we are whole humans when we make these decisions and when we try to solve work-related problems. And so it is interesting to be able to say, okay, who is this whole person? How do I fall in love with them as a whole human so that I can match this work problem with hopefully a solution that I'm providing? Oh, it's fascinating to me that you bring up B2B and that's exactly the the challenge that I would always need to address with clients when I was a filmmaker, for example, and we would create content for B2B clients. And there is this overarching presumption and perception that B2B content needs to be a specific way. The B2B videos all need to be serious documentaries talking about their company. And the CEO always needs to be just extremely serious and stuffy and very stiff and non-human. And you're absolutely right. Remembering that even with B2B interactions and B2B sales, there is a human at the other end. That's what really makes the difference. I always think of this one example where we worked with this client that was specifically working with B2B buyers and sellers, and they had this online platform. And they contracted us to create video content to showcase the products that these uh, these uh, B2B sellers were showcasing. And till that point, all the content that other service providers had created for them was very predictable. This is the product. This is what it does. And we created a talk show. We created a BuzzFeed style talk show with these two people just looking at the product, being curious about it and just talking with each other about these different products. And it was amazing. They got, I think, 1.2 million views on YouTube when they put up those videos. And they got serious buyers, B2B buyers coming to them 
saying that, yeah, this product looks really cool. How do I talk to the the seller who's who, who's on your platform? What do I do? And yeah. they were so surprised. And they they just kept contracting us for like, we started with three videos and we ended up doing about 15 for them. Oh, wow. They were just blown away. They didn't realize that B2B communications could be fun and human. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think this kind of dovetails with, you know, your whole topic around speakers and training and getting them comfortable, because I talk about this a lot with my thought leadership pillars and that whole sense of building a personal brand. And frequently when I first start engaging with someone, they're like, well, I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll wear whatever. And I'm like, that's, that's not going to work. The whole point of having you as a human stand up and talk about something or be the person who's in the video is to create that connection and that credibility and that trust with the audience. And so if you just read a script that I write for you, that's, that's not doing any of those things. I can read my own script. I don't need you to do that. So that's one thing. And then so many people are very allergic to marketing. So I do a lot of developer and technical marketing. They hate marketers. They're, they're very skeptical of us. And so that's the other reason why I need, you know, an engineering leader or an engineering practitioner to be the face of that message. And it's because they've lived it. It's not me putting words in their mouth. It's I'm here to help you shape this story in a way that you feel confident and comfortable to engage with your peers, like all the way around it, you, 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 not me, marketer, mine, and that sense of possessiveness. It's like, no, no, I have a skill set in helping you shape stories. And, and in your case, you have a skill set to help train leaders, but you're not here to turn them into a robotic presenter. That's not the point. It's to help them discover their own confidence and adopt the story in a way that they can tell it credibly. Absolutely. And I also don't think that being that robotic mouthpiece is going to work anymore. No. Thankfully, because I feel yeah. like audiences are just way more intelligent and they expect a lot more from companies. And they can, yeah. it's so easy to spot when someone's just rattling off a script that you yeah. know, their PR person just handed them. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. I, I love the, the trend of, just being more human and being more you, both in terms of the specific CEOs or spokespersons, personal communication, but also overall marketing communications. It's, yeah, I, I really think that trend is here to stay. I don't see us going back. I hope so. And I think some of the the reason why people still, people on the inside still feel like maybe they need to dress a certain way and talk a certain way is because of all this legacy. You know, when I was in PR, for example, it was just so normal to just create talking points for the person that you've booked the media interview for. And I now realize the one thing we were doing wrong, we were actually we were doing two things wrong. One, we were creating the talking points from scratch. So like you said, the thing not to do where we were just looking at the, the company website and materials and just figuring out what the best responses to these questions should be and just handing them on a platter to the person who's going to do the media interview. That was the first thing. But the second thing, more important than that, is that we were creating the same talking points regardless of who was going to be doing the interview. It was person yep. X. That also, obviously that robbed them of their personality and all the media interviews we did they went all right I don't think they were disasters 
but they could have been so much better. They, we could have yeah. we could have elevated them to the next level if we had incorporated this person's personality, asked them for the responses, and shaped the narrative, helped them just refine the questions, refine their responses instead of just giving them the answers. Like you said, yeah. it's 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 a great approach. Would you say that at any point it's important to think about your persona? Well, first your personality, your real life personality, who you really are, and then aim to distill some of it for a more public audience. I think so. And I think this is a, a place where personal branding tends to get a bad rap because people FOMO focus so much on the brand piece of it and they forget about the personal piece of it. They think that you are presenting this mask to people and that you've curated this mask. And that's not what a personal brand is supposed to be. Um, I think about this a lot. We are always all facets of ourselves. So my bio is marketer, writer, speaker by day, singer, actor, fitness fiend by night. I bring all of that to all of my engagements. But when I stand on stage and present, I am not doing barbell curls in a tank top while I do that. When I go to the gym, I am not showing up in a skirt and heels and a full face of makeup and my hair done to like, and I'm not standing in front of the mirror talking between sets. Jim Ashley doesn't show up as speaker Ashley. Theater Ashley, when I show up to rehearsal, I, I don't show up as who I am as a wife. I'm not walking around to like the random men in rehearsal and being like, let me just sit next to you and curl up the way that I would with my husband. That's weird. He's, you know, I'm a different person at home, right? I'm a different facet of myself, but I am still myself. And I think that if people can understand and appreciate that they are different facets of themselves, they show up differently as a friend or as a spouse or as you know, a direct report versus as a manager versus at the gym or hiking or whatever the things are that they do with themselves. And then saying, okay, which of those elements do I want to present? And I think this can happen in some tactical ways. So for example, I don't generally curse uh, in a business setting. Other people do, totally fine. We actually have in our values, um, we have curse words. And so it's always fascinating when I interview candidates and they're like, yes, so for the don't the customer. And I'm like, you can say it if you want. You don't have to. I personally say, don't screw the customer. I don't, I don't use the F word. Right. But that's, that's a choice that I've made in a business setting. I do sometimes curse in my personal life. And so that is a line from an execution standpoint that I've drawn for myself that I don't generally curse. I don't generally share, um, language that would be very explicit in a professional setting. That's fine if other people do. There's whole brands that are built on that tone of voice, right? So that's a very tactical way where you can think about, yes, there are different facets where I show up and I use different jargon or different lingo, but this is an area where I've chosen from an execution standpoint, that's a line that I've chosen to draw. That's one way I, I do think that people can curate uh, that particular persona in the same way that they curate Jim Ashley, wife Ashley, theater Ashley, speaker Ashley. These are incredible. It's exactly the kind of pushback I get from people, from clients, for example, when we talk about crafting this on stage or on camera persona, which I very much want 
them to base on their real life persona, just amplify it, right? Sometimes call it, you know, it's your real life persona on steroids or the best parts of it. And that's exactly the kind of pushback I hear that, oh, I'm myself. I'm always me, no matter who I talk to or where I am. But that is not true. You like to think it's true, but it's never true. So really just taking what you do naturally, very much like theater, taking what you do naturally, observing the phenomena of how you as a human are operating in these different environments and then being intentional about it and applying it intentionally to when you want to market yourself, when you want to create your personal brand, it really works. And it's really about striking that balance between taking away some parts of your personality that you might feel don't belong here, but also intentionally keeping some parts of your personality. I don't know if if this if you've seen this you must have seen this happening but I've found this new kind of trend of people putting in in their email signatures um father of 3 or you know something something to do with their personal life just adding in right into their signature which I find really refreshing and that's intentional and when you talk to them they do they they bring up their three children they bring up life as a mom or as a dad, and they don't hide that. Whereas maybe 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. It would have just not been okay to talk about your personal life in that way. Yeah. I think your comment about being intentional about what you choose to lean into, I think it requires a lot of self-awareness as well. And I think that's a piece. A lot of people struggle to look at themselves in that that way and i think that is one thing that um coming from that theater background the characters that i embody are not good or bad outside of that scenario and so and especially i tend to perform in the ensemble a lot and so because of that i'm switching between you know we're an angry mob or we're a excited ensemble or we're lovers at the promenade, right? There's nothing inherently good or bad about any of those characters. It's just a matter of whatever story you've constructed. And I think sometimes people think, to your point about the legacy, that the right way to be professional is for me to be sitting up like this, you know, and I shall speak to you now with the large words and I shall have <laughs> the talking. This is the the acceptable hand motions. Dude, and nobody got time to be speaking like that. That's too much effort, right? You know, and, and so there's that element where you, yes, I don't always show up. You know, sometimes I go on whole rants if you're, you know, nerding out with me at coffee and I'm not going to stand on stage and do that. Um, I am cognizant of where the camera frame is and making sure that my hand motions happen up here versus if my hand motions are happening down here, you just see my shoulders twitching and you're like, what are you? doing and it's weird right so it's not off brand or out of character for me to study the footage of myself and recognize that it looks weird if my hands are just like this and you just see things twitching at the bottom of the screen when an easy fix for that is for me to sit up bring my hands into the frame and recognize that this is where my hands live and I think that's that's the thing I think people think that 
studying and perfecting these things means that they're somehow faking it and they're not willing to do that or they don't like it. They're like, oh, I talk with my hands too much. You talk with your hands the amount that you talk with your hands. And sure, I could train myself to put my hands in my lap, but that is not, that is less on brand for me to put my hands in my lap for this whole conversation, right? So it requires a lot of self-awareness and it requires you to step back and look at what do you want to be? What are you? What is realistically not going to change? And so how do you curate that, not create it, not mask it, but curate it to get to that level where it does feel authentic to you and it reads authentically or sounds authentic to the audience. That is such a great point that you brought up about watching yourself back and figuring out what are the tweaks that you can make to really make more impact. And that's exactly what pro athletes do. And no one tells them they're going to fake it the next time just because they studied what they did and also what their competitors did. And now they're working on improving their game. And that's literally it. You're improving your game each time that you're on camera or you're on stage. It's an opportunity for you to practice what you've done so far and then amplify it and improve by 1% each time. And that is for... You, I can imagine, probably to an extent, quite easy and natural to be on different stages because you've you have the theater background and you've you're quite adaptive and flexible. And linking that to leadership, I want to ask you the quintessential question that I ask everyone who comes on this podcast, which is, did you have a switch flip moment where you realized you were no longer just an employee, no longer just a people manager, but you'd really become a leader. So I think there's a couple of things from a leadership perspective. One of them is around that influence and that trust. And that has to happen up, down, and sideways. Leadership is not just about standing at the top and dictating to everyone below. It really is about that that trust, rapport, and influence in a 360 view. And so this is this story I think will sound maybe a little bit odd as like is this is the moment when you realize you were a leader but for me it was a moment where I was like oh man I have to to own my part in this influence and trust and relationships and um this was years ago I actually had a manager who was willing to give me hard and critical feedback. And I was having some struggles in my working relationship with somebody else who was more senior to me. And so I talked to my manager and I said, Hey, I'm having some struggles in this relationship. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be working right. Can you join our next meeting and tell me what's wrong? And so she joined the meeting and, you know, observed and all of that. And as we left, I looked at her and I was like, so what's the problem? And she's like, you, you are the problem. And I was like, I'm the problem. And she said, you're, you're too much. You are not giving this person a, you're not preparing them effectively for the meeting. You're preparing yourself for the meeting, but you're not preparing them. B, they show up to the meeting and you haven't given them time to prepare. Then you just come in and you just start talking and you never give them time to process. And so you have full context, you were fully prepared, you have all the details, and that's that's not what they have, and you don't give them any time to catch up. 
And so you need to check in, you know, A, send them the materials ahead of time, B, see if they've actually taken time or had time to look at the materials. If not, you need to sit quietly and give them time to review and reflect. And I was like, this is going to be the worst thing ever. You want me to sit quietly in a meeting? And she's like, yes, sit there. I was like, how long do I have to sit there? She's like, until the other person speaks. It's like, this is going to be the worst thing ever, right? So the next meeting, I sent the prep. I came in, I sat down and I said, have you had a chance to review what I sent? And they said, no. And I said, okay, why don't we take a few minutes? Um, How long do you think you need? And they were like, oh, just a few minutes. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to answer a couple of emails. Let me know when you're done reading. And I'm like sitting at my computer, literally not even doing anything. Just like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done? <laughs> right. But after a few minutes, they started speaking and we had an excellent meeting. And that realization that leadership is not about dictating what other people do. It's about setting people up for success. That and and that that is within my control. That was the moment where I was like, okay, I have to fundamentally shift how I think about showing up and how I think about growing in my career because I'm not just an order taker doing tasks anymore. That is such a beautiful shift. It really encapsulates that switch from being responsible for results to being responsible for your people who are then responsible for the results and giving up control, giving up micromanagement and understanding that what you really need to do is step up and be this people leader that you may or may not feel equipped to do because I don't think anyone feels equipped to do that at first. And sadly, there are probably a lot of people being managed by first-time people leaders who just don't know what they're doing and they have to spend that time to find their footing. And your story really, really hits home for me. And I had a really similar experience where I was a director. I directed these film shoots for the longest time as pretty much a really small outfit. So we would hire these freelancers to become part of our film crew because I couldn't afford to hire them full-time. Right, right. I was pretty much my only employee, my only full-time employee for a long time. I would write the scripts. I would create the entire production schedule. I would have all the props list and the costume lists and everything that needed to be done on that day. So I would prepare myself exactly like you said for weeks and weeks and weeks prior to that day. And then I would show up and everyone else would show up And I would then have to give them information the day of and also be the custodian of all this information myself. So I would be the one who would have all the answers, which meant that everyone would come to me and ask questions all the time. And it would be a disaster. I would be answering maybe five questions a minute when we were just settling in, asked by about seven to 10 people. At the same time, Nosheen, do yep. you want the curtains this way or that way? Nosheen, do you want the actress to wear green or blue? Nosheen, does the light, should the light be here or there? Nosheen, what do you think of the frame? And I realized, what am I doing? I'm shooting myself in the foot. I'm not setting up myself for success by not setting up the team for success. Why am yeah. I not arming them with this information 
that actually will make them accountable. It will reduce my own workload later on. I'm setting the future me and the future them up for success if I do that. So it's a massive switch. And you, you said it really beautifully. Would you say that you changed something about yourself in terms of speaking when you made that switch? You realize that now I'm responsible for people. I'm responsible for empowering them. And I need to speak a certain way. For example, were there words that you used or stopped using? Was there Were there specific speaking mannerisms that you adopted or left behind? Yeah. So two-part answer, one of which is quite counterintuitive given, given the conversation we're having. And the, that piece of it is that I should not always be the person speaking. So making sure that my team who's owning the work feels empowered to be the ones to give the presentation or to stand up and present in the meeting or to facilitate the meeting um, and not always being the person to jump in. And I'll tell my team sometimes, hey, I'm going to be on this meeting, but I'm going to stay on mute unless you need something. So if you need me to jump in, ask, say, Ashley, can you speak more about this? So that was the first thing was actually, again, similar to that first leadership moment of quiet that that moment of silence is a very powerful piece of speaking and and that cadence. So that's the first thing. The second thing, again, I can be quite confident and that is not always the best thing. And so realizing that if I'm bringing an idea or I'm facilitating a brainstorm or something like that, making sure that I don't shut that down because I come with a confident opinion. Just because I speak loud just because I speak quickly and just because I have confidence does not mean that I have the right answer. And so really making sure that my speaking cadence doesn't imply that a decision has already been made or that there is a right answer when there's not, um, that I that I don't accidentally take over the entire room. That has been another big piece of changing some phrases to say, in my experience or to offer a different perspective, or I'm curious to hear instead of, I think we should do it this way, or I recommend that we do it this way. That small tweak gives people space to push back or share a new idea or disagree in some way versus saying, you know, this is the way it's going to be. And that's such a great point that a lot of times leaders are just used to speaking with confidence. I mean, after, after all, it's the confidence that got them there in the first place. They got promoted. They got to this point because they were assertive. They were outspoken. They knew how to communicate their ideas well. And in a room full of people that where this leader is the senior most person, most likely they're going to be the person who's best at communication and recognizing that if they continue to be that good or that assertive people will interpret what they're saying as the final word because now there's more power attached to their words. There's there's more weight just because of that title. Yeah. They call it the, um, the hippo. It's the highest paid person's opinion. And so it's like a phenomenon where if there's no clear decision maker, they just default to the hippo. And if you're not careful, everything just becomes this one person's you know, ideas or approvals or something like that. And so we talk about this a lot internally at Atlassian and making sure that we are clear. We have, it's called the DACI framework. So it's got a driver, approver, 
um, contributor and informed so that we're very clear on who is actually the approver so it doesn't accidentally default to the hippo. We have a lot of very smart people um, that have senior titles and they're very good at what they do, but they don't always have the context to make the decisions or they're intentionally trying to create growth opportunities for other people. And so they intentionally do the same thing of pulling back and saying, listen, just because I am the most senior person here does not mean that I am necessarily the approver or, you know, I, I might defer to somebody else. I come from the Asian work environment, and that is super common in a lot of places in Asia, both in, in, in Pakistan and in China, which are the two places I've primarily worked at, in, and Hong Kong. The boss is always right. The boss has the authority to make the final decision. There are times when the the marketing team that I would have been working with as a commercial service provider would we would have these long discussions spanning several weeks. We would, you know, hash out the script for a commercial. We would all be really happy with it. We would know this is what we want. This is the best for this product launch. And someone would take it to the CEO for a sign-off, which should have just been a little formality where the CEO yep. says, great, go Rubber ahead, stamp. do it. Yeah. And the CEO changes the entire direction of the project. This has happened to me before and after shoots. We've gone through this whole project. We've shot the commercial. We've gotten the first rough cut. Someone in the team goes and shows it to the CEO. The CEO says, why are we talking to these Gen Zers? Can we talk to boomers instead? And this person has come back to me sheepishly saying, Nasheen, we know it's not your fault. We're going to add budget to this project. You're going to have to go and rewrite the script, add in the boomer angle, reshoot some of the scenes, and then somehow bush them together <laughs> to create this Frankenstein's monster of a commercial. And we did it. We had to do it. We had no choice. Yeah. And that is, is really quintessential. It's exactly what happens in a lot of situations where yeah. not only is the boss or the leader or the CEO disempowering, but they also don't get involved till it's too late. Yeah. If they feel like they're giving the team some kind of responsibility and empowering them in some way, or maybe they think they're ticking off a box. Yeah. And then when the team actually does that work and brings it to them, they're almost always displeased. They're almost always not on the same page and they change, they change directions and they feel like that's their prerogative. Because again, I feel like they're in the results oriented mindset. They're responsible for the results and not for their people. So it's, it's quite unfortunate, but it's so common. And Frankenstein's monster of a commercial is not going to get you results. Like this is not, I think this is the other thing, both from a, a speaking perspective and a leadership perspective, everybody thinks it's fluffy. It's a nice to have, it's soft. And there's no actual impact. There is. If you build trust with your audience and your customers, they will buy more from you. If you build trust with your, with your employees and you invest in their success, they will stay. They will produce better work. They will be more productive. Like this has bottom line impact. And so 
I think that's the other thing that, you know, oh, I'm results oriented. And so we got to get the results. It's like, okay, why do you think that this Frankenstein of a commercial is going to get you better results than having, you know, the right message targeted to the right audience in the right place at the right time, right? Like, it's not soft. It's not a nice to have. It does actually yield business outcomes, both from a revenue standpoint and from a, you know, talent or retention or productivity standpoint. Absolutely. I had Mark C. Crowley, who is a best-selling author of Lead from the Heart on the show. And this is exactly his research that if leaders can really lead from the heart, if they can actually genuinely care for the people that they're leading, the business results will come. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, exactly the opposite, where happy people will produce great results. And this is 20 years of his research. And it's still something that he has to defend. And if you read the book, you can tell that he's defending it in every single chapter because he knows that the moment he talks about heart, people think, oh, that's fluff. Oh, great. It's good. It's good to have. No one's going to argue with that. But then bottom lines and you know, crisis situations and crunch time is is just outside of all of that. He, right. he makes an excellent case for exactly what you said, that it, that it's really not. There is a really direct correlation between the two. Yeah. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, talking about the Ashley personal brand, have you created or curated, which was a great word that you used, have you curated the Ashley personal brand And I'm specifically, of course, interested in the speaking piece of it. Have you spoken at different kinds of events outside the company? Have you crafted the the Ashley personal brand and how you would be speaking to a wider audience? I have. And it's funny because I'm actually going through a little bit of an evolution where my like, I actually really like wearing sheath dresses and like structured pieces, like pencil skirts, heels, those kinds of things. But I feel like it's quite mismatched that, that very structured, um, you know, symmetrical vibe that that very conservative buttoned up vibe is quite different from the energy that I actually bring to the stage. And it's kind of this whiplash where I, I'll go back and I'll watch recordings and I'm like, I look I, I look very polished and professional. I sound very prepared and energetic. Why are these not, I, I feel that I am myself in both of those scenarios, but it, it, watching it, it looks mismatched to me. So it's very interesting because I'm actually going through an evolution of like, well, should I wear brighter colors with that? Like if the pieces are still structured, but I wear brighter colors. Um, so in terms of my actual energy, the way I speak, the way I craft my slides, the types of stories that I tell and the narratives and hooks that I lean into those. I'm generally not a big, uh, meme person. Like, you know, some people tell, tell things with memes, right? I'm not very big on memes. I'm not particularly funny. Uh, have very few jokes with punchlines. I don't like cold opens. I kind of hate them. I'm like, why are we randomly dropped in the middle of this action? Why do I care? Who are the characters? I don't care about any of this. Um, so I, I don't generally use cold, cold, um, cold opens as hooks. So my general structure tends to be almost like a kind of a 
myth busting type of thing or like a little bit of a surprise type of opening where you're like, I I feel like you're kind of trying to trick me, but I don't quite know how. But it seems like you're you're leading me somewhere. So I, I like the audience to feel like they're in on whatever the secret is going to be. But they are surprised and they're like, actually, I was I was a little I was a little skeptical of where you were going. But now that you brought it around, now we're I, I agree with you, right? So I, that's the type of kind of sense that I like to curate in my opens. Um, and then I I usually err on the side both in meetings and in uh, sessions on giving time back to the audience. I never want them to feel like, okay, she's been going for forty six minutes, and I thought this was a forty five minute session. Like, and she doesn't seem to be coming to a stop is this session going to go for an hour? Like, oh, the meeting is, you know, we're, we're two minutes to the end of the meeting. Like, and she, the way she's speaking, it doesn't seem like the meeting will be over soon. I never want my audience to feel like they are checking their watch or that I'm not cognizant of the time. I always want them to be like, oh, well, we've, you know, we've got 10 minutes left or whatever it is, five minutes left. And she seems to be wrapping up. I'm going to get out of here on time. Like, that sense that that I have respected their time. Those are just fantastic things to think about and also develop and evolve over time. You, as you pointed out, that mismatch is really fascinating. It made me think of my own mismatch, which I never thought of before, because as you said, when you see yourself, you see yourself. Right. At least for us. Actually, I wouldn't say that's true for a lot of people. A lot of clients that I work with don't see themselves when they watch themselves back on stage or on camera. But I, I, I love that you see yourself and I can relate to that. I just see myself. Yeah. But lately I've been thinking about what kind of presumptions people make based on my appearance for people that are listening. I have purple hair and that is probably the first thing that people notice about me. I also have an eyebrow ring which has been pointed out on, you know, on YouTube by trolls where I, I, I uploaded a short and someone said, I'm not going to listen to someone with purple hair and an eyebrow ring speak about leadership. And of course they were trolling. I didn't respond, but it made me think how many people are making that assumption. Yeah. And to your point, there are parts of yourself that are very structured and very, very, very corporate in a lot of ways. I feel very corporate. I love structure. I love time management. I don't want anyone to look at me and think, oh, that's a hippie artist. We can't really rely on her. She's going to not know what deadlines mean. She's not going to be able to follow this work plan or direction. I am the opposite of that. I'm not even the kind of artist who says it's going to be my vision or nothing. I am not going to listen to the client. That is not me. Yeah. So understanding what kind of presumptions people could be making based on your appearance is a very sobering thought. Yeah. And then you have to decide whether you're going to play into it, whether you're going to adapt what you're wearing or how you are, whether you're going to just call out attention to it and just, you know, call out the elephant in the room and yeah. and somehow bring it together. So it's it's a fine line. So are you, do you think you're going to change the way that you dress, especially when you're oh. giving these bigger talks? I don't know, because 
the other piece of this is the the actual logistics of like, where does the mic pack go? Do I have to stand? Like, am I going to be elevated on the stage? Um, as I'm noticing, I'm sitting in front of a window and I'm like noticing the, the lighting quality getting worse. And I'm like, oh, I need to sit here so people can see me. Uh, as the sun goes down in the window, I'm like, oh no, I didn't think, of, I didn't think this through with the sunset. But um, I don't always know the setup that I'm walking into. And so I've found a couple, I've, I detailed it on LinkedIn. Actually, I was like anatomy of a perfect presentation dress. I'm like, it has a high sturdy neckline. So I can put a mic pack on and the, the way the skirt is, um, if I happen to need to step up or like sit on a stool, I'm not going to flash everyone. Um, the sleeves come down. So it's, you know, I'm not awkwardly that stuff matters. And especially for female presenters, um, we don't generally have good pockets for things. Um, and our clothing tends to be more streamlined. And so the ability to, you know, walk or perch or whatever, like I've been in situations where I was a panelist, fortunately I was wearing pants, but they literally had us up on stools that you had to like climb on. And if I had been in a pencil skirt that day, (laughs) We would have been struggling. So I do try to, I do try to ask. I mean, again, I think some of this could be solved with color. Um, you know, wearing a bright blue dress versus a, a nate dark navy dress. That is something where I could still keep the shape that is quite functional and just update the color palette. Right. So I, I think it is very interesting though, because I talk about this even, even with male presenters where they if they don't feel comfortable in a suit jacket or something like that. It's like, okay, well, you have to have somewhere to put the mic. So a pocket, a waistband, a jacket, like something, it has to go somewhere and you have to be able to clip it. So where is it getting clipped and where is it going in or, you know, in like, that is a thing that is a real thing that you have to remember is going to exist. <laughs> I remember your post. As soon as you mentioned it, I remembered it. That was an amazing post. It's exactly what goes through our minds. And it's it's quite incredible. You're right. Sometimes I'm really envious of men because all they have to decide is whether or not to wear a jacket and a tie. Right. Otherwise, it's really simple. Of course, they can play with colors. And I recently had a client where I where he he gave me this option of um either wearing like just a regular dress shirt or like a dress shirt that had these buttons that popped, you know, that were like a different color. And I was like, go with that one because it was more in line with his personality. It's so simple. I will say though, one of our execs wore dark, like dark wash jeans and a dark hoodie. And it was like one of the, like a nice looking hoodie, but he looked like, and then the background was black curtains. And so he just looks like floating head and hands. And I was like, <laughs> okay, we need to bring a light hoodie next time so that he, just in case we need to swap it. So I will say that is, that's fair. The color thing is serious. Like I usually bring two or three options and then I try to go like sneak a peek at what the background's going to be. So if it's going to be a black background then I try to wear like a gray dress, if it's going to be a gray background that I would wear like a blue dress or something like that. So that I have contrast with the background and I'm not just a creepy set of head and hands. Like I am now. I'm very, I look at the lighting and I'm like, Oh my, I'm you're starting to get ghost. Ashley. We didn't talk about that personality. Oh, what's great is that if anyone's still here, if they're watching, especially if they're watching the video version of this on YouTube, 
they really like what we're talking about. So they're not going to yes. care that we have exactly. ghosts, Ashley. Exactly. I, I love thinking about it to that level of detail, what the colors in the room are going to be like so that you don't clash with them. That was really one of the, the things I thought about a lot when I was doing my TEDx talk, because I knew there was going to be a lot of red in the room and I wanted to wear red and I had seen other people wear red. So it was almost this uncomfortable space of me, A, as a filmmaker, knowing that if there's a lot of red in the room, maybe don't wear red because you don't want to be the same color as, as the curtains. And B, also knowing that you also don't want to be cliched because people have seen so many TED and TEDx talks and they always see these women wearing these very specific colors. It's usually red or black that I've seen a yeah. lot of. So I wanted to avoid red and black. And again, from my filmmaker head, I knew that black is just not a color that we would recommend people to wear, which is really interesting because black is so common and most people have black in their wardrobe and most people identify with black. And apparently it also exudes power, at least in person. I just don't know if that translates to camera. So really being yeah. able to imagine and visualize what you're going to look like in the moment and then dressing, not just for the occasion, but also for yourself, because yeah. you have to be comfortable. And as women, I'm sure a lot of women listening should be able to relate. We always know that one dress in our, in our wardrobe that looks amazing but it's so fussy yeah it's gonna just look weird around the bust it's gonna just have some some weird thing going on somewhere that you're going to always have to adjust and when you're going out for a party maybe that works yeah. but when you're on stage you don't want to be constantly adjusting your clothes so yeah. to your point and I think that was a big part of what you talked about that you have to be comfortable. If you're physically comfortable, you're mentally comfortable. And right. a lot of people really underestimate the power of that. Yeah. Well, or they only, like when I'm in a dressing room, I'll, I mean, depending on the thing, right? If I'm, if it's Jim Ashley, I will literally do jumping jacks in the dressing room because that's what I'm gonna have to do in these stupid leggings, right? And so if it's a presentation dress, I'll like, walk powerfully through the store like like oh i have to walk on the stage right you know so i'll i'll try to do these things because there to your point there's a lot of things that look fine if you're just standing or sitting calmly but as we see i am not that person i'm going to talk with my hands i'm going to lean in i'm going to you know move and so i'll i'll like do like a whole little mini thing and i'll like raise my arms and put them down and like lean forward i do all this stuff in the dressing room to see like what happens? And if I'm constantly like, oh, I have to pull on it, not the dress for me. Mm. And that's that's great because my last question to you was going to be, what is your pregame routine? What is there a specific set of things that you do to prepare yourself before you need to go on stage? And you've already touched upon some of it, but, you, but could you tell me if you have like a very specific set of steps that you that you always do? I actually don't. I will say, do not underestimate the power of drinking water and going to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> those, like the timing of the water drinking and then the lipstick putting on, like it's a whole thing. Uh, I do tend to wear a full face of makeup when I present. Um, again, I'm bare face now because we're having more conversation. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can get more light. I'm yeah. very concerned. It's okay. That helps a little. Um, yes. But 
usually when I present, especially if I know there's going to be lights on my face, um, making sure that I'm wearing a full face of makeup, but then the sequence of drink the bottle of water, go to the bathroom, be done drinking the water and go to the bathroom. And while I'm in the bathroom, putting on the lipstick and then walking on stage so that I make sure that I'm hydrated. It's good for the voice, good for the vibes, you know, good for the skin, good for all of it. Um, but then I'm not going to have to go to the bathroom halfway through my talk. Um, and then making sure that I don't forget my lipstick so that I have like really bright eyes and then my lips are creepily not there. That's, you know, so, um, and then in terms of the actual talk, I, this is something that I personally think I need to work on. Um, my openings for some of my talks, I haven't nailed them yet. So I have a couple of openings where I'm like, this opening is really great. There's my thought leadership talk, for example, I don't think I've nailed the opening. I don't think the narrative on the opening is very strong. And so because of that, I'm not confident in the opening. And I think that if you're not confident in the opening, you don't set yourself up for success with the audience. They they worry that you're not prepared. So that's an area that I'm working on with that talk in particular. It's like, man, that opening is not where it needs to be. But in general, I try to really focus on the opening, um, how I walk on stage, how I present in that first couple of minutes. Once I get going, I settle in the audience. We I figure out what kind of vibe I'm getting from the audience. And so I know if I need to adapt, if I get like a completely dead audience, like sometimes I'll, I'll call it out a little bit of like, hey guys, like I know it's after lunch, but we got to have some energy here. So I'm going to need you to shout out an answer, right? And just to to really let them know what kind of presentation they've walked into and sat in on. Um, but otherwise, I I find that I try to present on things that I know intimately. And so I'm not having to memorize a script. I'm not having to internalize a message that I don't actually believe in. And so I don't have to do all of this very rigid pre-presentation prep because I already believe it, because I've already internalized it, because I feel confident and comfortable with what I'm wearing, with what I'm presenting. Great. All I have to do is stand up there and do it. Um, so yeah, most of my stuff is is that very nitty gritty tactical, like water, bathroom, lipstick, good to go. <laughs> all the millions of micro decisions that we have to make before we start presenting ourselves to a wider audience. Because we know that if we watch it back, we're going to cringe every time we look at that. We look at our face and realize all I had to do was put on that lipstick. Why didn't I do it? Exactly. I, I, gave, I gave myself so much grief because I forgot to to adjust my top because um, it was tucked into my pants when I was sitting, waiting for my turn to go on the TEDx stage. Yeah. And I knew that if I got up, I would have to adjust it so that it, there's there aren't like a lot of wrinkles. And I got excited. It was my first TEDx talk. And as yeah. soon as they called out my name, I just sprung up from my seat, wrinkles and all. And I got on stage. And then when I watched it back, I just, I told myself, what is wrong with you? All you had to do was just tuck your shirt back in. It's so simple, yeah. so simple. And you forget it. Yeah. I, I loved the part that you said about feeling the audience. And I really feel that you've internalized this idea of creating that conversation with the audience instead of just talking at them. It is such an essential shift to make as a speaker because you are setting the tone for the room. 
like you said, you are the one who's letting them know, is this going to be the kind of presentation where you're going to check your email on your phone? Or is it the kind of presentation where you would be almost encouraged, empowered, and maybe even required to pay attention and contribute as well? It's always you. It's always the speaker in the room who sets the tone, the energy, the vibe, and you have a lot of responsibility to make that clear as soon as you get on that stage. And you need to be very intentional about calling out things that you feel could be improved upon. And like you said, it's always good to to point out the elephant in the room. Once uh, when I was presenting in, in a new environment, I think it was one of my first presentations in China and one of my jokes didn't land. I think I was talking about, actually, it wasn't even a joke. I was just asking about a specific thing. And the I realized later that the audiences in China are not very used to engaging. In fact, they think of every single talk as a lecture and they think of every single speaker as a teacher. I would have people come up to me after events saying, thank you, teacher. That was really enlightening. So they're just not in the zone of contributing. So I asked a very, very simple question, something like, has anyone seen an interesting ad or does someone, does someone find this ad interesting? And I had shown them something and I just got got blank faces when I asked the question. And I realized, Noshin, you have to call this out instead of just going ahead because then your presentation is just going to go downhill. And I just just took a second and I said, no one. So no one has seen any interesting ads in the history of the world. There have been no interesting ads, right? And then people just started laughing and they realized that, okay, we we have to say something. We're going to contribute. So exactly, it really works. This has been an amazing conversation. It's been exhilarating. Oh, thank you. This is fun. I feel like, I know, you and I are going to have to nerd out about all of our speaking tips at some point. I think so. I think so, especially with the theater background. And, you know, my background is more in improv. I've done some theater, but I've done a lot more improv. But I do feel like there's, there's so much in common there. And I love that you brought all of that in. You shared your experience really generously. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for listening all the way till the end. I am super grateful for your support. If you like this episode, please take a minute to leave a five-star review. It would mean the world to me. To know about how I help leaders speak fearlessly, you can check out nsheen.com. That is the first letter of my name, N for Nasheen, with a sheen like Martin and Charlie. See you in the next episode. Till then, speak fearlessly. Fearlessly.